Section 16 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 8, Part 3. Third Commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, thy God, in vain. 22. The purport of this commandment is that the majesty of the name of God is to be held sacred. In some, therefore, it means that we must not profane it by using it irreverently or contemptuously. This prohibition implies a corresponding precept, viz. that it be our study and care to treat his name with religious veneration. Wherefore it becomes us to regulate our minds and our tongues, so as never to think or speak of God and his mysteries without reverence and great soberness and never in estimating his works, to have any feelings towards him, but one of deep veneration. We must, I say, steadily observe the three following things. First, whatever our mind conceives of him, whatever our tongue utters must bespeak his excellent, and correspond to the sublimity of his sacred name. In short, must be fitted to extol its greatness. Secondly, we must not rashly and preposterously pervert his sacred word and adorable mysteries to purposes of ambition or avarice or amusement, but accordingly, as they bear the impress of his dignity, must always maintain them in due honor and esteem. Lastly, we must not detract from or throw obloquy upon his works, as miserable men are wont insultingly to do but must laud every action which we attribute to him as wise and just and good. This is to sanctify the name of God. When we act otherwise, his name is profaned with vain and wicked abuse, because it is applied to a purpose foreign to that to which it is consecrated. Were there nothing worse in being deprived of its dignity, it is gradually brought into contempt but if there is so much evil in the rash and unseasonable employment of the divine name, there is still more evil in its being employed for nefarious purposes, as is done by those who use it in necromancy, cursing illicit exorcisms and other impious incantations. But the commandment refers especially to the case of oaths, in which a perverse employment of the divine name is particularly detestable. And this it does the more effectually to deter us from every species of profanation that the thing here commanded relates to the worship of God and the reverence due to his name and not to the equity which men are to cultivate towards each other. It is apparent from this that afterwards in the second tablet there is a condemnation of the perjury and false testimony by which human society is injured and that the repetition would be superfluous if, in this commandment, the duty of charity were handled. Moreover, this is necessary even for distinction, because, as was observed, God has, for good reason, divided his law into two tablets. The inference, then, is that God here vindicates his own right and defends his sacred name, but does not teach the duties which men owe to men. 23. In the first place, we must consider what an oath is. An oath, then, is calling God to witness that what we say is true, 
Execrations, being manifestly insulting to God, are unworthy of being classified among oaths. That an oath, when duty taken, is a species of divine worship appears from many passages of Scripture. As when Isaiah prophesies of the admission of the Assyrians and Egyptians to a participation in the covenant, he says, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan, and swear to the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 19.18 Swearing by the name of the Lord here means that they will make a profession of religion. In like manner, speaking of the extension of the Redeemer's kingdom, it is said, He who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Isaiah 65.16 In Jeremiah it is said, If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. Jeremiah 12.16 By appealing to the name of the Lord and calling him to witness, we are justly said to declare our own religious veneration of him. For we thus acknowledge that he is the eternal and unchangeable truth, insomuch as we not only call upon him in preference to others, but as a fit witness to the truth, but as its only assertor, able to bring hidden things to light, a discerner of the hearts. When human testimony fails, we appeal to God as witness, especially when the matter to be proved lies hid in the conscience, for which reason the Lord is grievously offended with those who swear by strange gods, and construes such swearing as a proof of open revolt. Thy children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that are no gods. Jeremiah 5, 7 The heinousness of the offense is declared by the punishment denounced against it. I will cut off them that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm. Zephaniah 1, 4, and 5. 24. Understanding that the Lord would have our oaths to be a species of divine worship, we must be the more careful that they do not, instead of worship, contain insult or contempt and vilification. It is no slight insult to swear by him and do it falsely. Hence in the law, this is termed profanation. Leviticus 19.12 For if God is robbed of his truth, what is it that remains? Without truth, he could not be God. But surely he is robbed of his truth when he is made the approver and attester of what is false. Hence, when Joshua is endeavoring to make Achan confess the truth, he says, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel. Joshua 7.19 Intimating that grievous dishonor is done to God when men swear by him falsely. And no wonder, for as far as in them lies, his sacred name is in a manner branded with falsehood that this mode of expression was common among the Jews. Whenever anyone was called upon to take an oath is evident from a similar obstation used by the Pharisees as given in John, John 9.24. Scripture reminds us of the caution which we ought to use by employing such expressions as the following, As the Lord liveth, God do so and more also. I call God for a record upon my soul. Such expressions intimate that we cannot call God to witness our statement without imprecating his vengeance for perjury if it is false. 25. The name of God is vulgarized and vilified when used in oaths which, though true, are superfluous. This too is to take his name in vain. Wherefore, it is not sufficient to abstain from perjury unless we, at the same time, 
Remember that an oath is not appointed or allowed for passion or pleasure, but for necessity, and that therefore a licentious use is made of it by him who uses it on any other than necessary occasions. Moreover, no case of necessity can be pretended, unless where some purpose of religion or charity is to be served. In this matter, great sin is committed in the present day. Sin, the more intolerable in this, than its frequency has made it cease to be regarded as a fault, though it certainly is not accounted trivial before the judgment seat of God. The name of God is everywhere profaned by introducing it indiscriminately, in frivolous discourse, and the evil is disregarded because it has long and audaciously persisted in with impunity. The commandment of the Lord, however, stands. The penalty also stands and will one day receive effect. Special vengeance will be executed on those who have taken the name of God in vain. Another form of the violation is exhibited when, with manifest impiety, we in our oaths substitute the holy servants of God for God himself, thus conferring upon them the glory of his Godhead. It is not without cause. The Lord has, by a special commandment, required us to swear by his name, and, by a special prohibition, forbid us to swear by other gods. The apostle gives a clear attestation to the same effect when he says, that men verily swear by the greater, but that, when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Hebrews 6, 16, and 13. 26. The Anabaptists, not content with this moderate use of oaths, condemn all without exception, on the ground of our Savior's general prohibition. I say unto you, swear not at all. Let your speech be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Matthew 5.34, James 5.12 In this way they inconsiderately make a stumbling block of Christ, setting him in opposition to the Father, as if he had descended into the world to annul his decrees. In the law the Almighty not only permits an oath as a thing that is lawful, this were amply sufficient, but in a case of necessity actually commands it. Exodus 22.11. Christ again declares that he and his Father are one, that he only delivers what was commanded of his Father, that his doctrine is not his own, but his that sent him. John 10.18 and 30 and chapter 7 verse 16. What then? Will they make God contradict himself by approving and commanding at one time what he afterwards prohibits and condemns? But as there is some difficulty in what our Savior says on the subject of swearing, it may be proper to consider it a little. Here, however, we have never arrived at the true meaning, unless we attend to the design of Christ and the subject of which he is treating. His purpose was neither to relax nor to curtail the law, but to restore the true and genuine meaning which had been greatly corrupted by the false glosses of the scribes and Pharisees. If we attend to this, we shall not suppose that Christ condemned all oaths, but those only which transgressed the rule of the law. It is evident from the oaths themselves that the people were accustomed to think it enough if they avoided perjury, whereas the law prohibits not perjury merely, but also vain and superfluous oaths. Therefore, our Lord, who is the best interpreter of the law, 
reminds them that there is a sin not only in perjury but in swearing how in swearing namely by swearing vainly these oaths however which are authorized by the law he leaves safe and free those who condemn oaths think their argument invincible when they fasten on the expression not at all the expression applies not to the word swear but to the subjoined forms of oaths for part of the error consists in their supposing that when they swore by the heaven and the earth they did not touch the name of god the lord therefore after cutting off the principal source of prevarication deprives them of all subterfuges warning them against supposing that they escape guilt by suppressing the name of god and appealing to heaven and earth for it ought here to be observed in passing that although the name of god is not expressed yet men swear by him in using indirect forms as when they swear by the light of life by the bread they eat by their baptism or any other pledges of the divine liberality towards them some erroneously suppose that our saviour in that passage rebukes superstition by forbidding men to swear by heaven and earth and jerusalem he rather refutes the sophistical subility of those who thought it nothing vainly to utter indirect oaths imagining that they thus spared the holy name of god whereas that name is inscribed on each of his mercies the case is different when any mortal living or dead or an angel is substituted in the place of god as in the vile form devised by flattery in the heathen nations by the life or genius of the king for in this case the false apothesis obscures and impairs the glory of the one god but when nothing else is attended than to confirm what is said by an appeal to the holy name of god although it is done indirectly yet his majesty is insulted by all frivolous oaths christ strips this abuse of every vain pretext when he says swear not at all to the same effect is the passage in which james uses the words of our saviour above quoted james five twelve for this rash swearing has always prevailed in the world notwithstanding that it is a profanation of the name of god if you refer the words not at all to the act itself as if every oath without exception were unlawful what will be the use of the explanation which immediately follows neither by heaven neither by earth etc these words make it clear that the object in view was to meet the cavils by which the jews thought they could extenuate their fault twenty seven every person of sound judgment must now see that in the passage our lord merely condemned those oaths which were forbidden by the law for he who in his life exhibited a model of the perfection which he taught did not object to oaths whenever the occasion required them and the disciples who doubtless in all things obeyed their master followed the same rule who will dare to say that paul would have sworn romans one nine and second corinthians one twenty three if an oath had been altogether forbidden but when the occasion calls for it he adjures without any scruple and sometimes even imprecates the question however is not yet disposed of for some think that only oaths exempted from their prohibition are public oaths such as those which are administered to us by the magistrate or independent states employed in ratifying treaties or the people take when they swear allegiance to their sovereigns or the soldier in the case of military oath and others of similar description 
to this class they refer and justly those protestations in the writings of paul which assert the dignity of the gospel since the apostles in discharging their office were not private individuals but the public servants of god i certainly deny not that such oaths are the safest because they are the most strongly supported by passages of scripture the magistrate is enjoined in a doubtful manner to put the witness upon oath and he in his turn to answer upon oath and an apostle says that in this way there is an end of all strife hebrews six sixteen in this commandment both parties are fully approved nay we may observe that among the ancient heathens a public and solemn oath was held in great reverence while those common oaths which were indiscriminately used were in little or no estimation as if they thought that in regard to them the deity did not interpose private oaths used soberly sacredly and reverently unnecessary occasions and were perilous to condemn supported as they were by reason and example for private individuals are permitted in a grave and serious matter to appeal to god as a judge much more may they appeal to him as a witness your brother charges you with perfidy you as bound by the duties of charity labor to clear yourselves from the charge he will on no account be satisfied if through his obstinate malice your good name is brought into jeopardy you can appeal without offence to the judgment of god that he may in time manifest your innocence if the terms are weighed it will be found that it is a less matter to call upon him to be witness and i therefore see not how it can be called unlawful to do so and there is no want of examples if it is pretended that the oath which abraham and isaac made with abimelech was of a public nature that by which jacob and laban bound themselves in mutual league was private boaz though a private man confirmed his promise of marriage to ruth in the same way obadiah too a just man and one that feared god though a private individual in seeking to persuade elijah asseverates with an oath i hold therefore that there is no better rule than so to regulate our oaths that they shall neither be rash frivolous promiscuous or passionate but be made to serve a just necessity in other words to vindicate the glory of god or promote the edification of a brother this is the end of the commandment fourth commandment remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work but the seventh day is the sabbath of the lord thy god in it thou shalt not do any work twenty eight the purport of the commandment is that being dead to our own affections and works we meditate on the kingdom of god and in order to such meditation have recourse to the means which he has appointed but as this commandment stands in particular circumstances apart from the others the mode of exposition must be somewhat different early christian writers are wont to call it typical as containing the external observance of a day which was abolished with the other types on the advent of christ this is indeed true but it leaves the half of the matter untouched wherefore we must look deeper for our exposition and attend to three cases in which it appears to me that the observance of this commandment consists first under the rest of the seventh days the divine lawgiver meant to furnish the people of israel with a type of the spiritual rest by which believers were to cease from their own works and allow god to work in them 
Secondly, he meant that there should be a stated day on which they should assemble to hear the law and perform religious rites, or which at least they should specially employ in meditating on his works and be thereby trained to piety. Thirdly, he meant that servants and those who lived under the authority of others should be indulged with a day of rest, and thus have some intermission from labor. 29. We are taught in many passages that this adumbration of spiritual rest held a primary place in the Sabbath. Indeed, there is no commandment the observance of which the Almighty more strictly enforces when he would intimate by the prophets that religion was entirely subverted. He complains that his Sabbaths were polluted, violated, not kept, not hallowed, as if after it was neglected there remained nothing in which he could be honored. The observance of it he eulogizes in the highest terms, and hence among the other divine privileges. The faithful set an extraordinary value on the revelation of the Sabbath. In Nehemiah the Levites, in the public assembly, thus speak, Thou madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws, by the hand of Moses thy servant. You see the singular honor which it holds among all the precepts of the law. All this tends to celebrate the dignity of the mystery, which is most admirably expressed by Moses and Ezekiel. Thus in Exodus, Verily my Sabbath shall ye keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. Ye shall keep my Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever does any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Exodus 31, 13-17 Ezekiel is still more full, but the sum of what he says amounts to this, that the Sabbath is a sign by which Israel might know that God is their sanctifier. If our sanctification consists in the mortification of our own will, the analogy between the external sign and the thing signified is most appropriate. We must rest entirely in order that God may work in us. We must resign our own will, yield up our heart, and abandon all the lusts of the flesh. In short, we must desist from all the acts of our own mind. That God working in us, we may rest in Him. As the Apostle also teaches, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 and chapter 4 verses 3 and 9. 30. This complete cessation was represented to the Jews by the observation of one day in seven, which, that it might be more religiously attended to, the Lord recommended by his own example. For it is no small incitement to the zeal of man to know that he is engaged in imitating his Creator. Should anyone expect some secret meaning in the number seven, this being in Scripture the number for perfection, it may have been selected, not without cause, to denote perpetuity. In accordance with this, Moses concludes his description of the succession of day and night on the same day 
on which he relates that the Lord rested from his works. Another probable reason for the number may be that the Lord intended that the Sabbath never should be completed before the arrival of the last day. We here begin our blessed rest in him, and daily make new progress in it, but because we must still wage an incessant warfare with the flesh, it shall not be consummated until the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Isaiah 66.23 In other words, when God shall be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15.28, it may seem, therefore, that by the seventh day the Lord delineated to his people the future perfection of his Sabbath on the last day, that by continual meditation on the Sabbath they might throughout their whole lives aspire to this perfection. 31. Should these remarks on the number seem to any somewhat far-fetched, I have no objection to their taking it more simply, that the Lord appointed a certain day on which his people might be trained under the tutelage of the law, to meditate constantly on the spiritual rest and fixed upon the seventh, either because he foresaw it would be sufficient or in order that his own example might operate as a stronger stimulus, or at least to remind men that the Sabbath was appointed for no other purpose than to render them conformable to their Creator. It is of little consequence which of these be adopted provided we lose not sight of the principal thing delineated, viz. the mystery of perpetual resting from our works. To the contemplation of this the Jews were very now and then called by the prophets, lest they should think a carnal cessation from labor sufficient. Besides the passages already quoted, there is the following, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. Still, there can be no doubt that on the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ceremonial part of the commandment was abolished. He is the truth, at whose presence all the emblems vanish the body at the sight of which the shadows disappear he i say is the true completion of the sabbath we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father even so we should walk in newness of life romans six four hence as the apostle elsewhere says let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holiday or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, meaning by the body the whole essence of the truth, as is well explained in that passage. This is not contented with one day, but requires the whole course of our lives until, being completely dead to ourselves, we are filled with the life of God. Christians, therefore, should have nothing to do with a superstitious observance of days. 32. The two other cases ought not to be classed with the ancient shadows, but are adapted to every age. The Sabbath being abrogated, there is still room among us, first to assemble on stated days for the hearing of the word, the breaking of the mystical bread, and public prayer, 
and secondly, to give our servants and laborers relaxation from labor. It cannot be doubted that the Lord provided for both in the commandment of the Sabbath. The former is abundantly evinced by the mere practice of the Jews. The latter Moses has expressed in Deuteronomy in the following terms. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. Deuteronomy 5.14 Likewise in Exodus, that thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid, and the stranger may be refreshed. Exodus 23.12 Who can deny that both are equally applicable to us as to the Jews? Religious meetings are enjoined us by the word of God. Their necessity experienced itself sufficiently demonstrates. But unless these meetings are stated and have fixed days allotted to them, how can they be held? We must, as the apostles expressed it, do all things decently and in orders. 1 Corinthians 14.40 So impossible, however, would it be to preserve decency and order without these politic arrangements, that the dissolution of it would instantly lead to the disturbance and ruin of the church. But if the reason for which the Lord appointed a Sabbath to the Jews is equally applicable to us, no man can assert that it is a matter with which we have nothing to do. Our most provident and indulgent parent has been pleased to provide for our wants, not less than for the wants of the Jews. Why, it may be asked, do we not hold daily meetings and thus avoid the distinction of days? With that we were privileged to do so. Spiritual wisdom undoubtedly deserves to have some portion of every day devoted to it. But if, owing to the weakness of many, daily meetings cannot be held, and charity will not allow us to exact more of them, why should we not adopt the rule which the will of God has obviously imposed upon us? 33. I am obliged to dwell a little longer on this because some restless spirits are now making an outcry about the observance of the Lord's Day. They complain that Christian people are trained in Judaism because some observance of days is retained. My reply is that those days are observed by us without Judaism, because in this matter we differ widely from the Jews. We do not celebrate it with the most minute formality, as a ceremony by which we imagine that a spiritual mystery is typified, but we adopt it as a necessary remedy for preserving order in the church. Paul informs us that Christians are not to be judged in respect of its observance, because it is a shadow of something to come. Colossians 2.16 and accordingly he expresses a fear lest his labor among the Galatians should prove in vain, because they still observe days, Galatians 4, 10, and 11. And he tells the Romans that it is superstitious to make one day differ from another, Romans 14, 5. But who except those restless men does not see what the observance is to which the apostle refers? Those persons had no regard to that politic and ecclesiastical arrangement, but by retaining the days as types of spiritual things, they in so far obscure the glory of Christ and the light of the gospel. They do not desist from manual labor on the ground of its interfering with sacred study and meditation, but is a kind of religious observance because they dreamed that it was their cessation from labor they were cultivating the mysteries which had of old been committed to them. It was, I say, against this preposterous observant of days 
that the apostle inveighs and not against the legitimate selection which is subservient to the peace of christian society for in the churches established by him this was the use for which the sabbath was retained he tells the corinthians to set the first day apart for collecting contributions for the relief of their brethren at jerusalem first corinthians sixteen two if superstition is dreaded there was more danger in keeping the jewish sabbath than the lord's day as christians now do it being expedient to overthrow superstition the jewish holy day was abolished and as a thing necessary to retain decency orders and peace in the church another day was appointed for that purpose thirty four it was not however without a reason that the early christians substituted what we call the lord's day for the sabbath the resurrection of our lord being the end and accomplishment of that true rest which the ancient sabbath typified this day by which types were abolished serves to warn christians against adhering to a shadowy ceremony i do not cling so to the number of seven as to bring the church under bondage to it nor do i condemn churches for holding their meetings on other solemn days provided they guard against superstition this they will do if they employ those days merely for the observance of discipline and regular order the whole may be thus summed up as the truth was delivered typically to the jews so it is imparted to us without figure first that during our whole lives we may aim at the constant rest from our own works in order that the lord may work in us by his spirit secondly that every individual as he has opportunity may diligently exercise himself in private in pious meditation on the works of god and at the same time that all may observe the legitimate order appointed by the church for the hearing of the word the administration of the sacraments and public prayer and thirdly that we may avoid oppressing those who are subject to us in this way we get quit of the trifling of the false prophets who in later times instilled jewish ideas into the people alleging that nothing was abrogated but what was ceremonial in the commandment this they term in their language the taxation of the seventh day while the moral part remains viz the observance of one day in seven but this is nothing else than to insult the jews by changing the day and yet mentally attributing to it the same sanctity thus retaining the same typical distinction of days as had placed among the jews and of a truth we see what profit they have made by such a doctrine those who cling to their constitutions go thrice as far as the jews in the gross and carnal superstition of sabbatism so that the rebukes which we read in isaiah isaiah chapter one verse thirteen and chapter fifty eight verse thirteen apply as much to those of the present day as to those to whom the prophet addressed them we must be careful however to observe the general doctrine viz in order that religion may neither be lost nor languish among us we must diligently attend on our religious assemblies and duly avail ourselves of those external aids which tend to promote the worship of god end of section sixteen recording by lyle wilson haymarket virginia january two thousand and ten